Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Mark Kelly has flown sorties in Iraq as a fighter pilot, and he's explored the heavens as an astronaut. But he may be taking on his most difficult task now in trying to change America's approach to guns. Kelly has made that his mission since the uh, assassination attempt on his wife, uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. He's going to be by the Institute of Politics uh, later this year. But given the events in Oregon, I thought it'd be good to sit down now with Captain Kelly to talk about his life, his experiences, and where he thinks he's going on this very, very tough issue. Mark, um, when the Oregon shooting happened the other day, uh, my, my thoughts ran to you. We had just had lunch a couple of weeks ago, you and Gabby and I had lunch a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what what runs through your mind when you get that first bulletin, that first report of yet another mass shooting? Well, I think for you know people that don't pay really close attention to this, um, they probably miss a lot of them. So they probably only see these major mass shootings that get a lot of uh, attention from the media. But if you're somebody like me and, and Gabby who are, you know, working and created an organization to try to do something about this problem, um, you know, we have a staff in, in, in Washington, D.C. In our, in our office that's paying attention to this stuff all the time. So I get these emails very regularly. And I was on an airplane at the time, so I didn't see it as like, a, you, know, you know, other people might more normally see something maybe on TV. So for me, it's a rather regular thing. And uh, I was on an airplane. It actually happened while I was um, uh, in the air. So when I landed, you know, I got what was a typical email from my office and just said community college in Oregon and, you know, initial reports. Um, So I'd say I see something like that probably, you know, once a week or maybe every other week. So, you, you know, after when you see those things over and over again, um, I'd say, you know, like um, often, you know, maybe like a lot of people in the country, you're kind of numb to it. Uh, but then this one, like others, you know, it's uh, you know, rather significant and it kind of rises to the top and gets people's attention for a number of reasons. And initially, I usually think about, you know, what the family members are going through, and it reminds me of what that experience was like well, in my own life. Well, uh, well, let me ask you about that because, um, by the way, I was sitting in Charleston when this happened, literally two blocks from uh, uh, the Emanuel Church, and um, 
there was something about that that made it all the more um, appalling uh, that this could happen again and again and again. But uh, let me ask you um, about that. I I just, in that one instant, your whole life changed in a really dramatic way. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, whether these incidents throw you back to that moment. And what was that moment like? Uh, when yeah, you, absolutely. When you... Yeah, I mean, and that's what I normally think about is, hey, you know, how this is going to affect those the, the people involved, you know, the family members of the, the injured and the dead. And it brings me back to uh, January 8th of 2011 when Gabby was shot. And, you know, when where were Gabby you at that time? Killed. Yeah, I was in Houston, Texas. I was getting ready to fly as the commander of the final flight of Space Shuttle Endeavor. And it was a Saturday morning and I was talking to my oldest daughter. It was like, it might have been like uh, eight in the morning in Houston. And I'd just gotten off the phone with Gabby and I knew she was at this Congress on Your Corner event uh, at uh, the place where she normally did did these things, which was a Safeway supermarket, you know, around the district, different supermarkets at different different times. And and I just got a call from uh, Gabby's chief of staff, Pia Carasone, who, you know, didn't have much information. She said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but Gabby's been shot. And we hung up from the call, and it was, um, you know, it was uh, an experience I never thought I would have, and I never thought I would have to deal with. And you're right, something that changes your life dramatically, very quickly. And on the days that we see, you know, these mass shootings around the country, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is you have a lot of people whose lives has just been now changed dramatically. And they don't know, and they don't know. And and for those who are injured, but, but not killed, maybe not in ways that they can even um, anticipate. You know, I I relate to this a little bit because I have a... um, a child with a very serious chronic illness that began when she was seven months old and she had, we thought she had passed away. She had a seizure and it turned out to be a, a really serious and enduring uh, and at times life-threatening uh, problem. And it really defined our lives. And in that, but in that moment, it just seems surreal. It's like, this doesn't, ha- this doesn't happen to us. It, this is what, ha- you know, happens to other people or, and, or has anybody ever gone through this? Uh, I just, it is a really, a, a, when when these life-changing things happen, um, there is a surreality to it. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you found the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there really is. And I remember, I just, uh, last week, I saw <clears throat> the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, uh, at a conference. And he came up to me. And he said one of the most, you know, uh, and he, I'm not so sure if he used the exact words, surreal experiences he's had, you know, as FBI director, but um, that was kind of what he, what he meant was um, something like that, that he, the day, it was either the day Gabby was shot, I think it was that evening, late in that evening, he was in Tucson. Uh, he made it from Washington, D.C. to Tucson. It may have been the next day, uh, but to be standing there outside of the door of her ICU and talking to me, and it's um, it's just a strange thing. I mean, you just don't expect to ever find yourself in a position like that. And sometimes I remember early on thinking, is this like really happening? 
Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm imagining this. And um, and then suddenly, you know, reality kicks you in the teeth and you realize it's something you got to deal with. Yeah, this is, I mean, you uh, have spent a lifetime in the military um, and uh, you, you f- f- flew sorties in Iraq and you've been exposed to uh, mortal danger and you've seen people uh, I'm sure you you've seen these life and death situations before, but this is different, isn't it? When it happens so unexpectedly in a shopping center in your hometown. Yeah, you know, I have been exposed to it in in some way. I mean, but being a pilot flying off of an aircraft carrier, you know, it, it's a um, in a lot of ways it is a little bit of a sterile kind of a war experience. It's, you know, because you don't you don't see. Um, you know, you're very, you're, you're much detached from, you know, the destruction involved in, in flying in combat. Uh, I know what the experience is like to get shot at, to have people trying to kill me. I mean, I've done that dozens of times where I've nearly been killed. Um, but you know, the, you know, I think the soldier on the ground has, uh, you know, even a better perspective on, on some of these issues than, than, than I do. But this is so much different than than what we're experiencing here on our own streets. Um, you, you, well, it shouldn't happen on our own streets, and the sad thing is it doesn't have to. You know, we're a country of laws, and we fix, you know, at, at times throughout our history, we have fixed some very uh, difficult problems, and we as a nation have done some really difficult things like you know, sending a man to the moon in the 1960s. We were able to figure that out. And I think this is uh, a complicated problem, complicated political problem. And um, But I think we can, we certainly can do a lot better than we're doing today. Well, part of the problem is we, we are a nation of laws, but as the opponents of uh, gun safety, additional gun safety steps uh, are quick to argue, you take the uh, the the guy who uh, who shot Gabby and the others in Tucson, uh, you take Hol- uh, Holmes in Aurora, you take uh, Adam Lanza in Sandy Hook, you take uh, Chris Harper Mercer, the young man who visited this catastrophe on uh, Roseburg, Oregon, and they all have uh, this thing in common. You know, they're all uh, people who uh, they were loners and clearly struggle with mental uh, issues and um, saw apparently saw uh, mass murder as a way of uh, identifying themselves as, as, as uh, securing some public attention. Um, so how, how do the law, what laws can we put in place that would be effective in stopping uh, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of incidents from happening? You know, it's interesting, whenever I like do an interview on TV, you know, and I often, not always, but sometimes I'll look at the comments, you know, that people make on Twitter, and, and, and you know, I do talk about mental illness and that this is, this is a big problem, especially when you get into the, the, the mass shootings, you know, often young men, you know, who have some form of, uh, you know, mental issue, and then you mention that they're looking for notoriety, notoriety, which is uh, certainly, you know, true. I remember after Gabby was injured, um, meeting with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the, you know, one of the first times, and asked why people do this, you know, and they, uh, you know, political assassinations and mass shootings tend to be for one reason, 
and that's just to get attention. Um, so, you know, I, uh, you know, I understand that aspect of it. Um, and mental illness is, is one of, one of the issues here, especially with these, uh, you know, mass shootings, which are the ones that tend to rise to the top on TV. But also, but also with, uh, you know, you have a a huge number of people who uh, commit suicide each year with, with handguns. You have, uh, uh, people who commit acts of domestic violence, um, who, uh, have done so in the past. Uh, I mean, so it's, it's not just. Mental illness is not just uh, a matter of, in mass shootings, but also in uh, all kinds of other uh, yeah, it, violence it, visited true. by I guns. Mean, you know, when you do, when you talk about how many people are dying each day from gun violence, it's uh, close to a hundred. Um, most of those, you know, probably sixty on the order of sixty percent or so are, are suicides. Uh, most of the rest are uh, murder with a gun. Um, small percentage are accidents or unknown. Um, you know, if we if we had a you know stronger laws that uh, you know a law that would uh, make it uh, mandatory to get a background check before buying a gun, and um, people that were clearly mentally deficient, if uh, they're adjudicated mentally ill, and you get that information into the into the system, some of those people could be prevented from getting a firearm. Um, but what that if but, add- but but what if they're not, Mark? Uh, this young man who. Uh, who was guilty of this uh, uh, shooting, these shootings in uh, Oregon, apparently got, he had a small arsenal. Yeah, he did. Despite the fact that he uh, had a history of of problems, I guess he was uh, uh, summarily uh, dismissed from the military after a month. He um, went to uh, a school uh, for people with uh, emotional problems, how how do you deal with that? Because there's such sensitivity in our country to not stigmatizing people with mental illness. Parents are un, uh, they are unwilling to do it or, or are reluctant to do it. Teachers are reluctant to do it. Therapists are un, reluctant to do it. How, how do we get at that issue? You know, there have been proposals in some places, and they've been passed in others. Uh, you know, there's something in California that was recently passed called a, a, a gun violence restraining order. And when you know a family or an individual feels that they have, you know, somebody close to them that's really struggling with mental health issues, and they're concerned for you know their safety, you know, the safety of the individual or the community. You know, there's a process now where you can at least restrict somebody for a certain period of time from buying a firearm. Um, you know, people like the guy in Oregon mm-hmm. or in, you know, other places. I think that can be one effective, you know, measure. Um, I think the reality is, is no single law is going to, have, um, you know, stop every one of these violent acts that we see every day. Uh, just looking at the murders, you know, most of the murders are committed every day. Uh, well, a good percentage of those happen to be inner city yeah, you know, gang so. violence related and not mental health issues. Right. But the ones uh, where we're talking about, you know, mental illness, it's, it, you know, it's a challenge. You know, and I see people's point when they say you're never going to stop, you know, a mentally ill person from committing one of these acts, and I don't agree with that. I think, you know, there are some situations with some individuals that you will stop them. And maybe you don't have to stop them, you know, completely in their tracks from doing this. Maybe you just have to slow them down. And in that period of time, they could, you know, somebody could intervene, get them some counseling. Often you see individuals that do very well when they're on medication. 
uh, and then wouldn't commit these kind of acts. So, you know, it is, you know, it is uh, the responsibility of the community and the parents and the school to to, to help these individuals to identify them. Um, you know, the FBI has, uh, you know, a profile. I think this can be downloaded off the internet where it uh, even has examples of what people should look for when you when you have, you know, a profile on, you know, what kind of person does these things. And, and and then it's a matter of trying to get the person help, but at the same time, you know, we shouldn't make it really easy for people uh, who are dangerously mentally ill and people who are felons and domestic abusers from buying a firearm. Every gun I've ever bought, you know, I've bought with a background check. And, uh, you know, a lot of responsible gun owners, it's the same. And, you know, but if you go to a gun, a gun show or over the Internet, you can do that pretty much pretty close to anonymously and that's not uh, that's not a good situation yeah the, the the odd thing and just just to close out the discussion on these young uh deranged young people who've, cre- uh, who've committed these crimes is that in the case of this uh, chris harper mercer adam lance apparently it was the parent who encouraged the shooting and may have even helped provide uh some of the weapons adam lance's mom as i recall uh was killed uh, by him uh, after having taken him to learn how to shoot. Um, yeah, it looks like that. I mean, it looks like you're seeing a similar situation here with, with in Oregon to what happened uh, in Newtown, Connecticut. You know, with 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 the mother and the access to firearms. Um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. You make yeah. you you make the point that sixty percent only sixty percent of gun sales are covered by. Uh, by background checks. Um, That's what I think, right? So I was reminded by uh, PolitiFact, in, in fact, that uh, that that number comes from a study that's about 20 years old. Uh, but that's the you know most in, most recent information uh, that's out there. I'm hoping that you know some people do some more extensive research. You know, Congress has actually prevented the NIH and uh, the CDC from doing research into gun violence because it's not what the gun lobby wants to see. So Congress has restricted them from doing that. Uh, so there isn't a lot of hard data. I mean, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but uh, the most recent information we have is that, you know, up to 40% of gun sales are done without a background check. Did you have a different attitude uh, about uh, the gun lobby uh, before all of this. You, you, your parents were police officers. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, as I mentioned, you come from a military background. Uh, you've been around firearms all your life. Did, did, has this been an eye-opening experience for you? It's been a learning experience. I think I've had uh, before uh, Gabby was injured and particularly before the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, I think I had a very uninformed attitude about it. You know, I, you know, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, and I still am a very strong supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, you know, but at the same time, I mean, there's no reason why we should have 35,000 people dying from gun violence every year in this country. It's an enormous number. Uh, but I've come to learn a lot more about uh, the why. Like, how did we get here? You know, how did how did over time this become such a political issue? How did it become about money and influence and power in Washington, D.C. and state capitals and less about, you know, keeping our people safe and 
you know, less about, you know, gun safety and more about gun sales. Uh, so I would say I'm much more informed on the issue now, and you know I understand, you know how we got here, and I think I also understand the challenges that we face. The uh, there are two issues that people focus on. One is the background check uh, issue here in Chicago. Uh, the we, we have experienced the impact of uh, violence, particularly in the inner city, in a very profound way, and. Uh, many of those weapons uh, that are used in these shootings that are generally between gangs uh, come from uh, straw buyers who buy these weapons uh, often at gun shows uh, in bulk and um, and sell them uh, back here. Um, how, how much of an impact would uh, covering uh, those sales have on on reducing violence, do you imagine? Well, I think, you know, they're not only coming from gun shows, they're coming from a couple bad apple gun dealers outside of the city of Chicago. Um, you know, the gun lobby also often points to Chicago as a place that has, you know, some, um, you know, pretty serious gun laws, but at the same time has a relative higher rate of gun violence. And the reason is that Chicago is not an island. You know, the laws that are in effect in Chicago um, doesn't prevent people from trafficking guns into the city, and that's what happens. And we know there are a couple bad apple, you know, gun dealers in the in the county in Illinois, and we also know that a lot of the crime guns get trafficked, uh, you know, up from the south, uh, particularly, I think, from Missouri into into Chicago. Um, so, you know, gun, gun trafficking is an issue. Uh, background checks is an issue, and you know this situation we have with a certain very small number of gun dealers. In fact, but you know I think it's something like less than five percent of gun dealers are responsible for ninety percent of the guns that are found uh, that that come from FFLs that are found at the scenes of crime. So you know the you know the, the the government and the ATF, I think in particular, needs to do a, a, a better job at you know policing these uh, federally licensed firearms dealers. But you know to some extent they are, you know their hands are tied um, by a Congress that often doesn't want to make the sale of guns uh, more difficult. So when the argument is made that we should enforce the laws we have. Uh, the paradox is that there is also restraint on uh, the uh, the authorities to do that, uh, is what I'm hearing you say. That- yeah, it's it's that. But you know, when I think when when you hear people say we need to enforce the laws, they all you know that are already on the books. You know, that's half of a statement that you often hear from uh, the gun lobby. Mm-hmm. And what they're talking about, in I think in particular, are there are people that are stopped from buying guns because they fail a background check, but they're often not prosecuted. They're usually not prosecuted. So that is the specific, and, and, it, and it's illegal. Like if you, if you know, if you're, if you're a felon and you just get out of prison and you go to a gun store to buy a gun and you fail a background check, you have broken the law by trying to buy the gun. Those people are not prosecuted. But what did happen is they were prevented from buying the firearms. So that's a good thing. Now, certainly the government could do a better job prosecuting them. Um, that, I don't feel, is a valid argument to say that we shouldn't have a 
you know, a hundred percent background check, like, you know, closing the loophole at gun shows and over the internet. Um, so I don't really, you know, that, that whole enforcing the existing law concept is, um, you know, I think you, that those people normally need to be, you know, asked the follow-up question, like, what exactly are they talking about? And that's usually what they would tell you. And uh, how many people do you think are uh, prevented from buying guns each year uh, because of the background check? You know, there is a statistic. So there's a lot of numbers involved in this kind of stuff, and there, you know, a lot. So I, I don't remember the dates, but over like a certain 10-year period, from like, you know, some, you know, 2003 to 2013, something like that. Over a 10-year period, I think there were about 1.9 million individuals that failed a background check at a federally licensed firearms dealer and was prevented from getting a gun. Now, most of those people were not prosecuted for trying, mm-hmm. and that needs to be fixed. But at the same time, the success part of that was they were prevented from buying the firearm. And maybe it, maybe, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of them went to a gun show or bought the gun over the internet. Uh, but maybe some of them didn't. And, or maybe they were slowed down in getting the gun and didn't commit a crime. Maybe there are a lot of people alive today because we have background checks done at gun stores. I'm sure there are. Right. And given, given the nature of, 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 uh, because of what you're suggesting, there are people who go to gun shows knowing that they're not going to have a background check who, who wouldn't go. Uh, presumably, if they uh, if they thought they would, I'm sure there are thousands and thousands of people that do that. So, what other? Tell me if you were if you could do three things that would act that you feel would make a real substantive difference in this sort of carnage that we have. And I should point out, I saw a statistic uh, the other day that was kind of stunning that uh, we've we've lost more people to gun uh, gun deaths. Uh, since 1970, then we've lost in all the wars uh, dating back to the American Revolution, which is a kind of stunning, stunning statistic. Yeah, it's uh, an it's in excess of a million people, right? Yeah. Since 1970, right. I believe. Right, right. Yeah, it's a lot of people. So what would I do? You know, I would. Uh, you know, the pl- first place I would start is um, I wouldn't have the big loophole or the big the big hole you can drive the truck through, which is all the gun sales that are done over the internet and through uh, private individuals and all the gun sales that are done uh, at gun shows without a background check. I mean, that's a, that's a good place to start. I mean, it's, imagine, if we, imagine if our airports had two lines, one with TSA and security and the metal detector and the x-ray machine and another line where there was nobody. You know, where do you think the... Uh, terrorists would go when they want to bring a weapon on board an airplane. They would go through the line that doesn't have any security. Well, that's the system we have for gun sales. So the first thing I would do is get rid of um, the line with no security, which is I would expand background checks to the Internet and to gun shows uh, with federal law. Secondly, I would uh, do something about uh, domestic violence and changing uh, what it means to be in that kind of domestic relationship. This is kind of a complicated legal thing, but we have a lot of women die from gun violence that shouldn't because what the definition of domestic violence is and how it affects them and their ability to get access to a firearm. 
and that's also true with what how we def- what we do with individuals who are convicted stalkers. So I would fix those things, and then I would address the issue of gun trafficking, because cities like Chicago, um, you know, it, it's a it's a very difficult problem in cities like Chicago, New York, Boston, and others that have a huge number number of firearms trafficked into the city. So those are the three things I would address immediately. And along with that is, you know, I've, I've got to agree with, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier that, you know, the, uh, especially with these mass shootings, you know, that uh, the mental illness component of this is, is significant. We can do a better job on that as well. Presumably by uh, promoting some sort of discussion between the mental health community and and law enforcement. And people need to talk about it. I mean, we, I mean, when you look at what happened to, you know, Gabby and her constituents in Tucson in January 2011, here was an individual that, I mean, it wasn't just his parents that knew he had issues. It was, uh, you know, the community college, you know, people in, you know, that uh, were around him, his friends, um, they saw some pretty significant warning signs. And nobody made a strong effort to get him any help. And I think as a, as a country, as a community, you know, we need to do a better job, you know, with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers. You didn't mention two things that often come up. One is to limit the number of guns that can be purchased uh, over a, a, a set period of time to try and prevent these straw purchases. And then any limitation on high-capacity uh, magazines and semi-automatic weapons and uh, do you uh, are those things that you think are not helpful, or do you think they're unachievable politically, or uh, do they not? Well, you know, with you know, part of it, like if if you want to have an impact on gun trafficking, you know, certainly that might be something you would want to consider. You know, uh, you know, gun trafficking is a big business, and um, when somebody can go you know, to a gun store outside of Chicago and buy 100 guns or 50 and then sell them out of their trunk um, contributes to, um, you know, the higher death rate from gun violence in Chicago. I mean, that's a that's a factor. So I think that's something that should be looked at. Um, you know, when you get into, you know, magazine capacity and, you know, the hardware itself, that's something as an organization we are not, you know, focused on. Um you often hear the gun lobby say it's, uh, you know, it's not the gun, it's it's the person. And I got to say, I, I, you know, I agree with that. I'm a gun owner. Um, but why do we allow the person that shouldn't have a gun such easy access to him? So I can agree with them on that point. It is the person. You know, it is not the hardware. Um, so we got to keep the hardware out of the hands of individuals that uh, that that aren't responsible or mentally capable enough. Um, to be owning or in possession of those kind of uh, weapons. Well, you clearly have the constitution, the personal constitution, to uh, to, to to forge ahead. I'm sure there are many days when it's uh, when it's discouraging. Uh, but um, I've uh, always done hard things. You know, I've, I I flew in combat over Iraq and Kuwait, and that's not easy when you're 25 years old and. I'll tell you, i got to give a lot of these guys credit that are doing multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, um, you know, they, uh, you know, it, 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 it can be, a, you know, a major challenge. And, you know, flying in space is a complicated thing. Uh, we got a great team of people behind us at NASA. And, you know, we can do, this country can do some really hard stuff successfully. And this is a hard problem as well. It's a hard political problem. Um, 
but uh, there's no reason why we can't be successful. Well, Captain Mark Kelly, I uh, appreciate you spending time today with us, and uh, I thank you for your service in uniform and out, and our best to Gabby Giffords. Oh, you're welcome, David, and I'll, uh, I will let her know. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.